What's up, guys? Uh, welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. I'm your host, Gavin Gallagher, and on this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game often playing out unconsciously in your mind and in the minds of everyone else in the real estate or property investment market, or any market for that matter. Uh, the key to success in this game is to master your mindset and behavior to get control of your thought process, your emotions, and more, most importantly, your ego. So in last week's episode, I talked about, what did I talk about? A lot of different things, but um, I was mostly talking about resourcefulness in real estate uh, investing and the ability to think outside the box and look for alternative solutions to your asset and what you do with your asset. Because as I found in the car parking business that I was involved in, that uh, I felt autonomous cars were coming along and that we were going to end up in a situation where the building was effectively obsolete. And uh, and that's the way it was heading. And there's not a lot you can do with car park structures because they have these sloping floors and things like that. So anyway, this week's episode, uh, I've decided that I've actually, I've done a lot of different things in Facebook. I created a page and I created a group and there's been a lot of feedback and a lot of questions from viewers uh, or listeners or whatever. And therefore I've decided to turn this episode into a Q&A, a live Q&A session. So I am here looking at this on uh, Facebook and there's actually one person has just joined us. So whoever that is. Hello guys, I don't actually see here who's who's watching. This, yeah, this is going to be a live Q&A session and I've got a camera rolling in the background and this is actually going to go to my YouTube channel as well. But um, to start with, Facebook. Okay, so I have created a Facebook live, or sorry, a Facebook page and so far we, as of this moment we have 96 likes on that. So it's called the Behind the Facade and it's just a Facebook page but it's where I post the various episodes. And uh, second of all, I've created just this weekend the Behind the Facade community and Behind the Facade community is a, it's a Facebook group. And in there, I even when people kind of apply to kind of join in, they tell me a couple of questions about what kind of real estate investor they are, what level of experience they have. And then they come on in and they join the community. And the idea is that we can start conversations and we can kind of help one another out. And so I've been posting, I'm actually posting this to that group now at the moment. So if you're watching or if you're listening on the podcast and you want to actually interact with me live on a session like this, then can I suggest you join, uh, go and look up uh, the uh, Behind the Facade community in Facebook. And when you're in there, um, just click on join and I'll let you in pretty quickly and we will get straight into it and you can join in the conversation. You can ask the questions live on something like this or you can just drop a question in the comments and I will come back to you with either a video answer or I'll send back a kind of written answer, whatever it is. So uh, the other thing I wanted to mention and it's just, it's occurred to me in this last couple of days with the feedback that I'm getting is that, and it was something that was important to me from, from the very start, is that this podcast is a global podcast, not a local podcast. So despite the fact that I am based here in Dublin and uh, living here for a lot of my life, I do not want this podcast to be a local Dublin podcast that deals with just local issues. I want it to be global. I'm very much focused on what's happening around the world in prop tech, innovation, real estate. I've worked in Dubai, Qatar, um, in West Africa. I've owned property in, in America, Spain, all over the place. So I have a very sort of global outlook on all of this stuff. And I have friends in Asia 
and, uh, and, I'm, and I've spoken at different conferences around the world. So I want this to be a globally focused podcast. And so it was interesting to see some of the comments from listeners around the world at the moment. So far that I'm aware of, I have people in New Jersey listening in. I have people in Columbus, Ohio listening in. I have California listener, London, Dubai, and of course here in good old Dublin town. And what I wanted to do is just ask you guys, if you are listening to this, send me, jump onto the Facebook page and just go and leave a comment where you're listening from so that we have an idea how far this podcast is stretching out around the world. Who's listening? I have seen my websites getting kind of looked at from places like Japan and Australia, which is really interesting. And I just love to know who you guys are. Have you got any questions? Are you um, are you following along with the podcast weekly or is it just a one off? Just interesting data to kind of write, read. As you know, nowadays we're in the innovation age. Everything is all about data. So um, without further ado, I'm going to get into the Q&A session and um, we'll get straight to your questions. OK, by the way, we had a fantastic weekend here. It was the sunniest weekend, warm as hell, and it was like being in Spain. So I'm a little bit sunburned today if you're watching on the video. The um, first question is coming in from Malika and Malika is based in London. And I know Malika quite well, and she asks if I can cover REITs and specifically if I can discuss how private investors who don't have millions uh, of to invest could take advantage of the coming price depression. Now, great question, Malika. First of all, is there a coming price depression that is well worth questioning? And uh, hi, Sebastian, it's good to see you. And what I'm looking at here is in terms of REITs, I've got mixed views on REITs because volatility in the stock market can impact the share price of uh, REITs. And you can have an oil price dip or you can have some sort of panic in the stock market that we experienced back in March. And despite the fact that your properties are fully let and all this kind of thing, you'll find suddenly that your price has dropped. And therefore, it is very volatile in terms of pricing. And also, there's a thing called redemptions and redemptions. Um, Sebastian, thanks for your question. I'm actually going to answer the questions at the end that come in through this because I've got kind of something to go through here. And if I jump in, I'll, I'll be stopping and starting. Um, redemptions is an issue with uh, REITs and any of these kind of publicly listed things is that soon as there's any kind of a hiccup or headache in the market, everyone suddenly puts in a sell order and they, they want out. And the problem with that is that these companies, that these REITs, they sometimes actually have to sell a property in order to satisfy the repayment of these redemption calls. And if you've got that, if you've got like so many properties in your portfolio and they're all performing well and suddenly you've got 50% of your shareholders all went out at the very same time, theoretically you have to go and sell all of your properties in order to free up the liquidity you need to get out. Um, to get to buy those guys out. And that is a major, major issue for big guys uh, in companies like that. So they usually actually freeze any redemptions in that event. So you might like the idea of investing in a REIT because of the liquidity it gives you. But as soon as the market hits any kind of difficult moment, they actually 
block liquidity and you cannot get out and they say something like okay there's not going to be any redemptions for the next month or three months or whatever it is and that's it you're locked in so those are some of the negatives that i don't like about reits the positives there are plenty of positives and i happen to know a couple of guys running reits here in dublin and it's a big market for it here in dublin and these guys are super professional people these are class a investors they absolutely know their stuff super slick operations and as a kind of a normal person out there running a company you have a very difficult you've got a very small chance you're actually going to better these guys these guys are sharp as anything and therefore you are very very well advised to go and invest in those kind of companies if you are say a, a passive investor the reason I say that is that I believe that the return that you can get from a REIT is probably better than you can get from buying, say, a property or whatever uh, if you're a passive investor. Now, the difference is that's a cash on cash. If you're borrowing money as well, that can actually leverage your cash position. So it can make, make you know, it can double your, 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 your profits, but also it can double your, your losses in the event of the market going down. Whereas a REIT, you, you typically don't, borrow money to invest in a REIT you just put the cash directly into the property uh, into the REIT share and those guys will borrow or whatever and, and a lot of the time actually there's a certain amount of borrowing limited by these 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 are not risky investments they typically have very little borrowing and they have to keep a certain amount of cover in terms of redemptions and things like that so super professional very slick and you get access to big big deals and by that, I mean, some of the stuff that I saw in a fractional way, you'd never get access to these yourself. I mean, not even wealthy people get access to the kind of deals that REITs can get access to. And certainly the, the guys that I'm friendly with here in Dublin that run some of the biggest uh, investment funds in the country, um, they are they're going after the whale deals, you know, the massive deals. They're buying, say, 600 million uh, euros worth of debt for 100 million, and it's a special kind of debt write-off deal or whatever. And then they'll take that into their portfolio. They'll they'll invest 100 million. They'll get 600 million worth of loans, and they'll go off then, and they'll spend a couple of years extracting that value. And they might double or treble or quadruple their money in that time. So you'd never get access to this yourself. And a lot of times, those types of deals are not actually available. I remember looking at some of these deals back in 2012 and 13, and the way you, you were basically disqualified before you even entered the picture. You would walk in, you'd say, can I get the, you know, the details on this particular property that's for sale? And they would say, right, show us proof that you've got uh, six million sitting in a bank account ready to invest. And if you couldn't do that, that was it. You weren't even getting the articles of the sale. And so there was these guys, basically, they have the market to themselves in those situations. So huge advantages to it and uh, totally inaccessible to the smaller players. So if you want to have a fractional ownership in some of these big deals, fantastic business to get into, but probably more suited to passive investors. If you're active, there are other ways you can add value that will probably give you a better return than say a REIT. And to get into that, I've, I've got six, I call them the six ORs. And these are a good starting point with any kind of investment career. If you're, if you're deciding to kind of go into property investment, You've got, uh, first of all, your roadmap. I call it the six ores. Let's go through them. So there's an inner, there's three inner ores and there's uh, three outer ores. And by that, I mean the inner, it's the inner game that's going on in your head. And then there's the outer stuff. So roadmap, 
that is your your vision of your career, your future, and all of that. The, you can go into all of that in a lot of detail, but you need to know what type of investor you're going to be right from the outset. Are you going to be active or passive? Because that is going to define the type of deal you're looking for. Second of all, restraint. You need to be disciplined in this business. As I said it in a, in a quick face, um, a live yesterday that I did, you, um, a lot of people treat this business like it's a lifestyle. And it's not a lifestyle, it's a business. And if you treat it like a lifestyle, you're going to get burnt. And it's there's various reasons for that, which I won't go into here. Resilience is the next one. You are going to suffer the ups and downs of the market. When it's going up, everyone's having a great party and uh, it's all going one direction. But people seem to forget that the market can actually turn on you and you cannot get out of the market when it uh, turns. Um, and that's one of the issues that you got to live with. And you might be thinking, great, I've you know doubled my money or whatever. And you'll sit there being unable to sell your property while your property falls back to the original price that you paid for it. Now, you got to live with that. And a lot of people can't handle that kind of stress and strain and stuff. So you need to figure out what type of investor you are from a mental standpoint. Do you have that type of mindset that can actually resist these kinds of issues and uh, I, I've gone through some real tough struggles over the years and I've had you know banks chasing me for for debt and all sorts of things and when you get into that it can be a very stressful environment I remember my birthday I can't remember exactly when but maybe about 10 years ago now and I was sitting on the beach with my daughter with my daughters and uh, they were all kind of playing with me and we were having a bit of fun and I get a phone call and it's the bloody bank looking for a, you know, a really tough conversation and they wanted like 100,000 deposited into a, a loan account or something and they wanted to have that conversation right there despite the fact that it's my birthday and I have my children around me. So, difficult. Um, that's, resi- that's resilience. Let's get into the, the, six, the three outer ores and that is reserves and this is something that um, is also known as the buffer and if you don't have a buffer you are going to have a world of struggles when you are trying to figure out what exactly Um, to do in a downturn of a market because without your buffer without your reserves you are at the whim of the market and if you've spent all your money and along comes a fantastic deal a distressed deal that you can get something for say half the price you can't take advantage of it because unless you have the money lying around there's nothing to do so keep your reserves to hand don't suffer from FOMO and that's fear of missing out where you decide that you have to blow it the money's burning a hole in your pocket you can't do anything about that and reputation reputation is the next or and that is something that is very important if you decide that you want to have a long-term career in this business and that is obviously you know your integrity your the whether that you're a straight shooter or not whether you're a messer a person who kind of says one thing and does another um all of this has an impact on your reputation and the worse your reputation is the, just people tend to steer away from you and in a market like certainly here in Ireland if you're a messer I will know very quickly you're a messer I just have to put a couple of phone calls out there around and ask have you dealt with this guy before what's he like and they'll say yeah he's a straight guy you can do you'll do business with him or they'll say don't touch him total messer he'll he'll you know he'll mess you around and that is your reputation and then the final or relationships you've got good relationships you're going to get also the inside knowledge that can get you deals that would not be otherwise out there and uh, a lot of the stuff that i've done has been built on great relationships with people and partly because of my reputation as well so getting back to the question at hand from malika about what can investors do who don't have millions to invest 
if you, assuming now you are, say, an active investor and you're not looking at the REIT market, you can look at, well, whether you're passive or active, these are other alternatives, and there you are. Partnership, syndicate, um, an investment fund, which is, I guess, another form of uh, REIT. And then there's also crowdfunding, which is something that I'm really interested in. And uh, when you are an active investor, one of the benefits, one of the ways that you can earn additional funds is that uh, you can actually earn fees and different things like that for an added value that you create. So if you go out there, for example, this is actually how I started out. I created um, a couple of partnerships. And what I would do is the... um, (sighs) First of all, the share and the upside, you obviously share with mates, but you you bring them together and you have a collective spending power that is greater than your own. So if you have some money put aside and you want to go invest something, probably the most you can look at is buying either a house or an apartment or whatever, because you've got a limited cap on the amount of money you can spend or or the deposit you can put down. But if you group together, say, with three or four friends, suddenly you've got a lot more and that just opens up a whole lot of other avenues. And also you have influence. That's one of the things that I really dislike about the REIT is that you have zero influence in the effective management of that entity. So it doesn't matter what you say, whether you're jumping up and down with rage about something that they've done, they will just proceed with whatever it is that they've decided to do. Compared with, say, if you were to be a person who is in a partnership, you might be the managing partner. In my case, when I did my deals, I was effectively the the managing partner and I would run the deal for my partners. So I would do, you know, I had various partnerships. I had um, myself and a buddy 50-50. I had myself and two friends. We go a third, a third, a third. I had another uh, couple of partnerships where there was five of us. And there's obviously different partnerships and you have to structure those in, in ways and you have to put agreements in place and whatever. But one of the real advantages of the partnership is that if you have got friends that have got, say, skills in certain areas that you don't have skills, you can collectively get together and actually punch above your weight. So in my case, I had project management and development management skills, and I was the person who was going out, structuring, putting a deal together, and I would organize the finance, I would do the legals, I would do all the work. And my co-investors tended to be passive investors who had full-time jobs and they didn't want to go around doing all of that stuff. So this gave them the ability to get into a deal with just one or two other partners and the whole all of that work was done for them. Now, the good thing for me as the managing partner is I was paid for that work. So we would each put in our capital, say we each put 100,000 into a deal or 50,000, whatever it was, we'd each go in a third, a third, a third each. So you'd have 150 grand and I might earn fees that year of say 25 grand and the partnership pays me out. So I'm obviously, personally, I've chipped in to my own payback, but I'm only, I've, I've paid for, um, I'm getting basically the benefit of two thirds of the value of my work uh, because it's it's coming back to me in, in terms of payment. Um, so what, there's also advantages actually to the partnership model. Now it depends which country you're in and the various tax laws and things like that. And you do have to be aware. But w- when I was doing this back during the Celtic Tiger years, which was a wild time, there was massive advantages to this. The tax rate in Ireland at the time was 20% CGT, so capital gains tax of just 20%. So if we went out 
and made a lot of money. We only had to pay 20%. So what we didn't want to do was create this these corporate entities, like put a company between us, uh, because that would mean that the company would pay 20% tax. And then if we wanted to get the money out to ourselves, we'd have to pay another 20% tax if we liquidated the company. Or if it was a dividend, you'd be paying 40% income tax. So the advantage was direct ownership, direct in the asset. And that seemed like the best thing. We all thought we were fantastically smart doing this until the crash came along. And suddenly the word joint and several started to stick out uh, like a sore thumb. We had banks coming after us and you would have a situation where one of the partners uh, had just lost his job, couldn't afford anything at all, was potentially going to go bankrupt. And if you're the only one left standing, you now have assumed ownership of the total value of the loan. So despite the fact that you took a loan out with somebody else 50-50, now you have taken ownership of 100% of that loan. So that is joint and several, and that is an awful position to be in because if it, it, it basically pits you against your business partners. So I remember, and the banks were awful at doing this, the banks actually would sort of say to us, right, you know, well, Gavin, we're going after you because your friend such and such is not going to pay anything. And you've got more money than he has, or you've got more assets than he has. So we're just going to go after your assets and we're just going to leave him alone. And that would obviously create a huge amount of tension between me and my partner. And so there was an awful lot of that going on at the time. And a lot of people just fell out over it. So something that you've got to be very, very wary of with partnerships is the joint and several thing. And you have got to look at co-ownership agreements. And I would think nowadays you probably better off creating some sort of a structure where it's a limited partnership. I know that you can do that in the UK. I don't know in, in other countries what the different laws are, but you have a partnership in all uh, intents and purposes, but you don't have the liability, the limited, uh, you don't have the unlimited liability to banks. Second one is going to be the syndicate. Now, this is another good option. You have influence you still have influence on the whole thing but possibly a little bit less influence but you usually have a highly professional team and during the celtic tiger years again we had uh, the irish um, investor the irish property investor had the most incredible reputation for deal making and there was guys uh, there was a particular company called quinlan private which just went out there and was doing so many deals and they were buying up all the best properties. And these guys were invincible, effectively. They were so fast and nimble that they were able to outbid the Saudi royal family. There was a deal in London in 2004 and the Irish guys were up against the um, Saudi prince Al-Walid, I think his name is. And there was this was for a deal worth billions. And um, I think it was 1.2 billion they secured the property. And I think the guy, Walid, was actually, Al Walid was offering 1.3 million. So it might have been 100 million in the difference or some huge sum. But because the Irish guys were prepared to put a deposit down the following day or something like that, they got the deal. Whereas Al Walid was talking about two months because he had processes that they had to go through and they weren't giving the sellers any kind of commitment. And the Irish guys just swept in, took the deal off the table. And I believe that the Saudi guys were not too happy about it, but that's how it worked. So amazing purchase. They managed to buy the Savoy Hotel, the Berkeley Hotel and the Connaught Hotel, which are luxury hotel brands in London, very prominent assets and, you know, just absolutely grade A assets. And you're not going to find much like that. 
Uh, now, what ended up happening a couple of years later is that the market crashed and one or two, and this is the, the problem with syndicates, is that the actual person who put the syndicate together, the Quinlan uh, name in the, in the partnership, I believe he went bankrupt and he actually ended up living in Switzerland and he was, he was kind of removed as the managing partner and he had a huge stake in the actual investment. And he was approached by these external investors and they basically took his share off the market uh, for themselves. And then they they were pitting against the uh, the other investors in the deal. And so it ended up a very, very public and a very expensive court case with the Irish investor Paddy McKillen involved. And um, it was like a house of cards, basically. The guys were all kind of pitting one against an- another and... It turned out to be a bit of a mess, so that is one of the downsides to the syndicate. But generally speaking, at the when the when the market was rising, these syndicates were hugely valuable. You could get you could get into a a, a big deal with just a little bit of money, and that usually these syndicates were run by professional teams that had tax advisors and all this. So the whole thing would work in a very very systematic and kind of nimble way, and you just put your money in. You'd be in, you'd have the best tax advice, you'd have somebody doing all the legals. These would be very sharp people, you know, total professionals as opposed to you kind of doing it yourself and learning on the go. Um, the problem is, is these things became kind of very um, elitist kind of clubs and it was only the richest of uh, guys in the country would basically get access to these deals as it became more and more uh, rare and uh, and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, the next one is funds. And I actually sit on the board of a central bank, uh, an Irish central bank regulated investment fund. And it, I think it's called a QUIF, a qualifying investment fund. It's a PLC company, but it's not listed on the stock exchange. And one of the advantages of this is that it's highly regulated. So there's it's very unlikely that you're ever going to lose your shirt in a regulated investment fund because there are so many layers to it. There's administrators and there's trustees and there's uh, account managers, investment managers, there's anti-money laundering managers, there's all of this stuff and there's also reporting. Everything is reported and there's a, there's a lot of, there's a huge amount of paperwork generated. So the chances of something going wrong is unlikely. Um, now, what are the negatives to investing in a big fund? It's exactly the same. It's it's the admin, the trustees, the managers for the investment, the AMLR, all of that stuff is huge, hugely expensive. And to run one of these funds probably costs a minimum of about three hundred thousand a year in terms of the various fees for setting it up. So they are meant for a certain scale. And I think probably the minimum that they work in terms of size of investment is probably around thirty to fifty million. Anything below that, hardly worthwhile in terms of the costs. And uh, they're not also very nimble. You can't make a decision overnight because you've got to kind of assemble a board and there's got to be reports done and trustees have to be notified. And anyway, I won't go there, but it's it's not a nimble product, but it is something that a, a very big investor might be interested in because they don't want to be dealing with the nitty gritty details. They'll just know that this is highly regulated and it's in a perfect position to save your money. You're not going to lose a lot of capital, but I guess your upside might be limited to a certain amount. And then finally on that question is crowdfunding. And this is something that I'm looking at myself. I I actually really like the idea of crowdfunding because it kind of, first of all, you build your community and then you offer an investment out to them. 
and it can allow different people to put in different amounts. So if you want to put 500 into the, into a deal with me, you can do that. If you've got more money and you want to put 10 grand in, you can do that as well. And um, there are pros and cons similar to the partnerships and the syndicates and all that, depending on you know how it's structured. There's various voting rights and all that. And you can potentially have influence depending on whether you know the promoter. And it's what I like about it is that it's a good litmus test for the quality of the deal. If you put it out there in a one of these crowdfunding platforms and you say, here's the deal, here's the, you know, the various metrics and the numbers, what do you think? If you've got, uh, uh, you know, 50 or 60 people coming at you offering money, you know, it's a good deal. Whereas if you're finding it hard to float this investment out there, then you might have to think again as to whether or not this was a, a wise investment. And that is something that um, I think is probably it's a good discipline to do is to put the stuff out there and just see. Now, obviously, if you're going to be borrowing money from the bank, they're going to be making you do this anyway. But in this COVID-19 times that we're in, the banks are not particularly friendly at the moment. And I've seen them getting in the last couple of weeks, very, very sensitive and very and difficult, frankly, because what they've done is they've come in and they're they're starting to make these kind of blanket assumptions that the value of everything has dropped 30% or 15% or whatever. And uh, that may not be the case, but this is their policy in the bank. So um, at least you have you have the ability to go out and potentially raise the money with even, without even going to a bank in with a crowdfunding situation. And um, the only thing you have to be wary of is and this is where I get into my mindset kind of talks and stuff, is herd behavior. And there's one example I want to give you, and it's it's one that I'm aware of here in Ireland again during the Celtic Tiger years. And it was called the Irish Glass Bottling Plant. It was a former factory and it was now just this big site. And it was, uh, it was a lot of land and it was perfect for, say, development of housing or something like that. And it was a massive big property and it went up for sale. There was a big contractor who took control of it uh, he put down a deposit and i think he paid a, the equivalent of 600 million euro for this site and i can remember uh, hearing this in the news that somebody had just won the bid for the property and it was 600 million and i remember thinking oh, what how can they make that work and then we heard later that he had gone to one of the big stockbroking firms and he had said i've got the property under my belt and I want, I need 600 million or I need X amount of capital from so many investors in order to be able to qualify for a bank loan of whatever, three or 400 million. And 30 minutes later, you got a call to say, okay, we've got the capital for you. We've got all of the commitments in from the different investors. Now, I don't know if that's the exact detail, but this was the most enormous property deal. And in just 30 minutes, everyone said, yeah, yeah, let us in on that deal. Fast forward through and the crash came, the, the 2008 crash. I can't remember exactly when this site was bought, but I think it was sometime late in like 2007 or something. So already the market was getting shaky when this deal went through. And I think in the end, it was acquired by the bad bank, NAMA. And uh, I, I think somebody possibly paid like 100 million to buy that site more recently. And that is it. So 500 million lost. And the guy who actually put that deal together, the big contractor, he went bust. 
um, uh, to file for bankruptcy. And he had actually given personal guarantees, I think, at one stage. So obviously when his personal guarantees proved to be worthless, all of the people that put money in, they went after them as well. So this is another one of these situations where you've got to be careful of that you're not taking advice just because it's good tax advice. You've got to be thinking about this from the point of view of, is this good in the event of shit hitting the fan? And if you've got a load of people that are suddenly running for the hills because the market has gone south, if you don't know these people, you have no idea how they're going to react. Are these guys going to suddenly want all their money back or are they going to be there for the, do they have the resilience to stand with you shoulder to shoulder through the hard times? So a lot of that stuff you need to understand going into the deal. You need to make sure that it's properly documented and you need to make sure that you have the whole thing structured right so that in the events something bad does happen you all know exactly where you stand and um, at the end of the day strength in numbers so crowdfunding something that i like and instead of you know when you've got the strength in numbers instead of investing your fifty thousand in a property you go and band together with say 10 other investors now you got five hundred thousand. now you can go after a sizable asset as opposed to you know the little one where if what what's great about working as a collective is that you okay you lose a little bit of the influence possibly but the reality is is that you're diversifying your risk if you've got one apartment and it's got a tenant in it and you own it 100% and you have 100% influence over it that might all sound great but what if your tenant has just been laid off or furloughed and um, and he's now out of work not able to pay you rent so you now have 100% of your income gone out the window. You have 100% of the problem with the bank and you have 100% of the occupancy or the vacancy risk. So obviously, if you've bought 10 properties collectively with 10 guys, instead of you each owning one property, you own one tenth of all 10 properties. And it's unlikely that all 10 properties are going to be vacant at the same time. So whereas you may, you know, if you lose one or two investor, if you lose one or two tenants because of the fact that they, uh, they've gone bust or they've gone bust or they've been laid off or they've been furloughed, that's still only 20% of your total income. And so everyone collectively weathers the storm together. And that's one of the reasons why it is good to join forces. And it just gives you that little bit more spending power. If you're finding it hard to assemble your capital to go and put a deal down, maybe go to friends and family and sort of say, look guys, can we each put in X amount together and maybe we'll buy something together and I'll manage it for you and I'll do it for say a month's rent or two months rent a year as kind of you know my um, the value or if you're asking them to do something and you can't do it yourself this might be just your way of getting into the property market for the first time and so you do it for free but you do it for free on the basis that this is your leg up that you're, you you wouldn't be able to get otherwise. So that's it, guys. Uh, lastly, obviously, there's the personal pension fund. I don't know. I'm not going to get into that. But here in Ireland, you can potentially invest in property through your personal pension fund. But there's all sorts of caps and things like that. So that was from Malika in London. Thanks, Malika. Good question. I hope I answered it to your satisfaction and uh, comprehensively enough. Next, we are going into um, question two from Robert from Dublin. And Robert had a two part question and I'm not going to go into the first part of the question. He was asking about reclaiming land for uh, development, residential development. And it's something that interests me because of my background here in East Point. East Point is built on reclaimed land. And um, I'm going to do a separate episode about all of that because there's there's various sites all around the world where they're doing this. 
And rather than get into the specifics, um, which would be a bit too much of a local answer to a to a sort of question, and I'm trying to keep this like a global, universal um, talk. So instead, Robert, I am going to go to the second part of your question, which was the impact of COVID on the office market. And I'm giving you the question of the week, Robert, just so as you're aware, that was a good question. And one that um, I've actually, I've had a couple of people asking similar, but you were first in. So here in East Point, uh, Big Park, I'm, I run the place, I'm here now, and um, we have 37 buildings, I believe, and we have about 50 different companies in this park. And these guys are all currently vacant. There is nobody in the park doing any uh, kind of activity at all. There is Google are in the park and they're doing a small amount of activity. There's only a handful of, well, actually, there's probably maybe 50 people in, the, in their buildings, but normally there'd be a couple of thousand. And uh, pretty much all the buildings are empty at the moment, bare, barring like one or two staff. Um, on the 8th of June, which is month, this day week, basically, there should be a certain amount of number of people back in the park. Um, but I believe at the moment, most of the different occupants are talking about 30% max occupancy. And that is obviously going to have a dramatic impact on the office market. And there's two ways you can look at it. You could think that, does that mean that people are going to walk away from offices because they can work from home? Or does it mean that people are going to have to increase the size of the footprint with their offices? And I think it's a lot's going to depend on the activity of the company. Um, if you get into big corporates, they have huge investment in their properties. I mean, I know from personal experience down here in the park, I know what these buildings cost. I know what the management of them, I know how much they pay every month in rent. And this, these are major undertakings. These are not small offices. And so these guys are likely to keep on and um, hold on to their buildings and their offices. And in any case, they've often signed 10-year leases and things like that. So unless they go bust, they'll still be here and they'll be continuing to rent. And I think the COVID-19 situation will be resolved before people are moving out. However, in the event, if somebody is if, if if a corporate has a lease that's coming to an end at the moment we'll say in this next year or 12 months or 18 months i would think that there is a risk that people will move out because they can take advantage of the market and they could either use that to leverage against you um, so there's various risks there to the landlord and the tenant also has the option uh, J jason great to see Great to see you. I'm doing a live Q&A here and um, I'm just going through some of the questions I received online. So we have got um, the big corporates, big investment in the park. And the, the one thing that these guys are all very focused on is the war for talent. And they're all after the best, hottest staff out there. Hottest, I mean, hot shots, not <laughs> the other. And um, what we have here is a situation where these guys, their culture is massively important to them. And they've spent, in the case of some of the buildings here in the park, we have got huge amounts spent on gyms, canteens, breakout areas, um, meditation rooms. These offices are like holiday campuses. And um, it's very, very attractive to young staff in particular. And we have a lot of foreign staff coming to the country. And they, I've found that a lot of them actually stay after they finished work, they stay in the building because they want to get their dinner there. And so they don't have to go home and cook. So they, they may be living in shared accommodation somewhere. And rather than going home and having to kind of cook something in a kitchen that other people are in, they'll actually, they can stay 
and use the canteens in their offices. Now that obviously may be impacted at the moment with COVID-19. I'm not sure canteens are opening. But I do think that from a corporate culture point of view, I think that offices are critical and I don't see anybody, any of the bigger companies closing down their offices. I've seen these headlines, you know, oh, the end of the office and all this kind of stuff. And honestly, I don't see that happening. I do see there being a shift and the work from home experiment that we've all been doing, that is going to definitely change the way we do things. Um, but I don't think it's going to completely close the office down as a potential. I think what you are going to have is possibly uh, a shared uh, or a split week where you spend a couple of days in the office and you spend another couple of days back at home. And I have heard that, you know, Facebook is starting to allow their staff to work from home indefinitely. And it's not just based on COVID. It's just if they want to do that. And um yeah, there's also design considerations. We have been looking at the offices and the COVID response plans that we're drawing up here for East Point. And what we have is a situation where when you walk into a building, you're supposed to have one way entrance into the building and a one way uh, exit out of the building in two separate locations. You have a stairs that goes. We only allow one person in a lift at a time and you only allow one person or you only allow people go in one direction up a stairs or down a stairs, but you can't have them mingling where they're meeting on the stairs. Now, this is very disruptive at the moment for us because we're going around scratching our heads, wondering how we're going to do this because we have stair. We have one stair at the front of the building. So that's your upstairs. But if people are leaving, they're actually going to have to go down fire escape stairs at the back of the building, which are not, you know, salubrious. They're very utilitarian. They've just got, you know, painted surface. And so if somebody has fancy clients coming in, they're not going to want to send them down the back stairs. So I think, and it's just, that is the way it is. The building is built and there is no way you're going to be able to change that. So this is something that is a little bit confusing for us. We're wondering like, what is going to happen here? Because you cannot, I cannot see people going and building buildings, new buildings with two sets of stairs to accommodate the two different entrances. This is just too much investment. And in any more than the airline companies are going to be able to run a business that has, you know, 15 people in an airplane that's built for 200. I just, you're either going to have to, you're going to have a period of time where you're paying a huge amount per seat on the ticket on the airline, or you're going to have just people saying, look, we're just going to have to manage it. And you're going to have to sign some, some sort of a waiver. You're going to go in, you're going to have to wear a face mask, you're going to have to wear gloves, you're going to have to take precautions and you're going to have to sign a waiver that you could potentially get covid while you're on this. And that's how I think this is going to eventually be dealt with because I cannot see people, you know, knocking down buildings and saying, right, we're going to have to rebuild this building because of the way the staircases are configured at the moment. In terms of the actual floors themselves with the desking and stuff, that I think is probably easier to manage because the moment you have these pods where there would be four desks and people are share in these pods and they'll just probably allow one person to come in, sit at the desk and then the other people are out that day. And so what I have seen one of our tenants here in the park, what they're doing is they have got a policy where 50% of the staff work from home for two weeks and the other 50% are coming to the office and have been socially distanced and then they rotate that every two weeks. So that's a way that that is being dealt with. But one of the things, one of the advantages I think that's going to come out of this whole COVID-19 situation is going to be flex offices or co-working. And I think the reason that that is going to be a benefit is because of the short-term commitment. You don't sign a long-term lease. While we're in this COVID-19 reality, 
I think it's going to be very, very difficult for us to have a situation where you're going to go in and sign like a 10-year lease. You just don't know how much space you need. You don't know. You just don't know a huge amount. The uncertainty is too great. And no more than Warren Buffett, who's taken most of his investment off the table and he sold out of banks and airlines, he just cannot see any kind of a future here at the moment. And so he's taken his money off the table. One of the rules is don't lose your capital. And that is one way to do that. So I think that what's going to happen here in the short term is that flex offices like WeWork and things of that nature, those guys are going to possibly find that they're suddenly in, there's a big influx of people wanting to rent space from them that they can take temporarily. They'll probably look for a fixed desk as opposed to the hot desk where you're coming and going because people will want to be able to put their staff in. They'll want to know that it's socially distanced and that it's managed. And basically the operator of the co-working space will take all of the responsibility for keeping the place healthy and safe and the deep cleaning and all that kind of stuff. Work from home productivity. That is one of the issues I see. I, I myself had to spend seven weeks working from home here during the lockdown. And speaking of my own experience, I have a young daughter running around the house and she doesn't understand why she's not going to school and she doesn't understand why daddy is home and he's not willing to play with her. <laughs> and so I've had a situation where I'm sitting there at, at the kitchen table working away and she comes in, she wants to play. Or if I'm on a Zoom call, she suddenly pops up behind my head and uh, it, it's all funny and stuff, but the reality is, is that my productivity was not good during these seven weeks. And so if you multiply that out by a, a workforce of a couple of thousand, you can see how this is going to impact on your overall performance in the company. And therefore, I do not see major corporates going to a situation where everyone works from home. Just don't think it's workable. I think their young staff want to come in. They want to mingle. They want to socialize with their workmates. All of that stuff is part of how you meet your, you know, your, your future mate. And, uh, and, and that kind of thing. This is actually, I borrowed that from Scott Galloway. If you, if you guys listen to Pivot and, um, the reason that Facebook are able to go off and make these decisions is that their policy is to move fast and break things. And they're, you know, super innovative culture, but that's not necessarily something that big corporates are going to follow. And if you look at it from the point of view of major financial institutions, banks and things like that, those guys have got all sorts of regulations around how they handle personal data. They're not going to be able to allow you work from home and have easy access to personal data of, say, clients and things. Also, one little thing I remember, and this is a small anecdote, but back when I started my career, I did a project for IBM and it was their new campus here in Ireland. This is back 25 years ago, nearly. And they, um, 26 years ago, and these guys, uh, they came in and I can remember there was a little bit of extra space left over on a, on a, in a, on the floor plan. And I thought, why don't I put in somebody with a little bit of an extra space? They had like an extra bay on the window. So all they got was like the amount of space that it takes for a chair, but it was that little bit wider than the office in the next door room. And I remember sort of saying, yeah, let's just do that. And this guy came along and it was their chief architect. And I remember he said, who did this? Who authorized this? And I said, oh, I, I just thought, you know, why put a wall when you can have somebody who have when somebody can have a corner office um, for this for the for the value of like a 600 millimeter sort of corridor outside that's of no value to anyone. And he he kind of read me the riot act. I remember he said, we're not giving somebody a corner office. They have not deserved that. And these guys were so I mean, this is 
IBM back in the 90s. So obviously their culture may have changed by then. But this guy was not going to allow it. And in the end, what we did was we put a, car, a wall up and what you had was a small, super narrow little corridor. So you had glass and about 600 mil up to this wall. And the only thing it was good for was a bin. So we put a dustbin into that little corridor and that was what this guy thought was acceptable rather than giving somebody in the office a corner office. And that was because their rules about, you know, the amount of space that people, they had everything down to the final, the nth degree as to what was considered normal space for different members of staff. So that being the case, uh, I won't be working on IBM any soon. soon. So Break flexible break options, Robert. That was one of your questions specifically. Is there uh, are people going to accept flexible break options? And I think it's a good idea in theory. But what about the landlord and the ability to finance your deal? And I personally, I think that uncertainty of not knowing when somebody is going to be coming around, and you know, you you want to know that okay, I'm borrowing money. It's going to take me say 15 years to pay this money back. And I have a tenant who has this moving break, can move, can, can go at any time. That's just not workable from my point of view. I need to know that this guy is in for the long run. And I might give him one break, say, at year seven or something like that. But the idea of have him having this flexible break whenever it suits him just does not suit. So um, I don't see a future for that. Um, perhaps I have seen it now in Spain and I've seen it in different retails, uh, f- you know, s- uh, formats, but just personally in a big office context i don't see it um perhaps residential it's it's a different story covid19 is an accelerant not a change agent agent and uh, i borrowed that from prof galloway as well um this i believe could be a time that actually heralds in an entirely new hybrid model of office workplace and what i mean by that is, is something that i've looked at just kind of on and off is the mixing of traditional office space with the co-working space and what you would do is us as landlords say we would build a building where the first two floors would be say a co-working environment and then the floors above would be the traditional office and the benefit of that could be that the the tenant who wants to rent the space only has to worry about the desks and the floor layout of their actual office. But if they need meeting rooms, if they need canteen area, if they need gyms, if they need all of that kind of stuff, that is services that are provided by the landlord. And so the landlord is in a position to provide all of this. And also when it comes to COVID-19 measures that to kind of protect people, that becomes your core competency. So I would become an expert in all that. I'd have all of the ins and the outs and the signage and the hand sanitizer and the deep cleaning. All of that would become our core competency. And the occupier does not have to worry about that stuff. He can just basically say, right, I just have to turn up for work the way I have always. And these guys are now going to do. So that is something that I've been looking at myself. I do think that there are some definite benefits to that. And I do think that there's going to be smart apps that come out and the smart apps are going to be particularly useful for, um, you know, temperature checking just today. In fact, if you guys want to check my Instagram feed, Gavin J Gallagher, 
you will find that I was in, um, we've just installed a new smart kind of um, temperature sensor. And it's actually like a large iPhone. It's, you know, it's a, it's a large one now, but it's, it's like a tablet, basically, like an iPad. And you walk in, this thing is standing at the top of a pole and you walk up to it and it immediately reads your temperature and it tells you you've got good temperature, you can pass. And it's a great way for us to actually reassure our tenants that there are not going to be people passing through that actually have a high temperature and still getting into work. And um, this is just something, this is just one system, but you can imagine if you had that on your phone, I do imagine that there are phone companies out there or like the likes of Apple working on COVID-19 strategy where you turn on your phone and when it's reading your face to open the screen, it's also checking your temperature. And I expect that'll probably be coming out with the iPhone 12 or something like that. And um, these are all really, really interesting things that I think innovation, that's one of the things that I really pay attention to because I do think that is going to be a solution and the ability to manage your office remotely, having people work from home and then they decide to come into work. All of that stuff can be handled by smart apps and technology. So guys, we are... We're at 52 minutes, so it's been a longer than usual episode. I did have a question in from um, Sebastian, but I propose to have that question answered in the next live session. And what I wanted to tell you about was, as I'm reading out the credits here, is that, um, uh, well, thanks, first of all, for listening. Appreciate all of your um uh, your views and your, and your watching this and your, your listening to this. If you found the... Um, episode useful, please consider sharing it out to a friend or indeed leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to. If you have questions or topics like Sebastian's topic that wanted to be covered in future episodes, please comment in our Facebook page. That is quite a recent thing. Behind the Facade is now in Facebook. If you go in there and hit like, you'll be on the thing and you can leave. You'll actually find a link to every one of the podcast episodes there. And if you've got a particular comment or whatever on a certain episode, drop it there. And if you have any questions or topics that you'd like to cover, put it in there. And while you're doing that, please tell me where in the world you're listening in from, because it's really interesting to see, uh, you know, where people are hearing this from. It's nice to see that I have listeners in New Jersey and various places around the world. And if you this is this is interesting now because this is a live Facebook that we're doing as well, is if you want to participate in the direct live Facebooks in the future, can I suggest that you look up the Facebook group now, Behind the Facade Community. Very imaginative title that I came up with. But we're going to be, I'm going to be super active in that for the next 30 days. I'm doing a daily Facebook Live and I'm going to answer the questions that people are dropping in. And already I've had, I think, five new members join this morning. And so they've already dropped a couple of questions in. So I'm going to be addressing those either tomorrow or the next day as as the week goes on. So that's it, guys. If you want to connect with me or if you want to learn more about me, uh, you can check me out in social media or you can sign up to my new newsletter, which I am starting very soon. And you can find a, um, a sign up for that on my website, www.gavinjgallagher.com. That's J in the middle, Gavin J. Gallagher. And um, lastly, if you enjoying if you're enjoying this Facebook live video, then I think you're going to like the videos that I post over on my YouTube channel. So check out PropTech TV. That's all one word. And um, there's also a Facebook page for that as well. But 
you'll find most of my content on real estate investment, innovation and impact goes over there. And uh, you'll also find a link to that in the show notes. So guys, until next week, we're at 55 and a half minutes and I'm going to say farewell and catch you all very soon. (music) 